Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the June 18, 2023 session, focusing on Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Uncommon Decency. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Burt Montgomery. And I'm David Adams. But life is full of unexpected things. And probably it would be boring if it wasn't for the unexpected. Surprises us, wakes us up, and can also be fun. I'm wondering, when have you in your life experienced or participated in an act of unexpected kindness that ended up changing your life in some way? Unexpected kindness. When we were living in Memphis, our kids were little, and a parking lot behind one of our favorite pizza restaurants. It was in Midtown Memphis. There's a lot of activity and a lot of mix of kinds of people and economically disadvantaged people and homeless people were always in the area. And we came out of our pizza place and we're walking to our car and there was a homeless man and he asked us for something and we engaged him in conversation and then decided, hey, let's place an order. We'll go get something for you and bring it out to you. So I talked to him the whole time with my children who were young. They were both elementary age sons. While my wife went inside and bought the sandwich and was bringing it back out. And then, and then we left and we named, his name was Pete. So we call him Memphis Pete. I forgot about it because I'm not trying to sound anything. We we do these things sometimes. And, but I hadn't thought about it in a while. And then my children, as they've grown up, will come back and they talk about that time we bought food and talked with Memphis Pete and heard his story. And then we were somewhere and discovered that my oldest son, who now lives in Memphis, was pulling off to, to give some food to some people. He went out of his way to get something and take it to some people on the corner. And that really, I'm starting to tear up, but that it changed my life that it changed my son's life. Um, that you know, what you think is just something you're doing makes a difference for somebody else, not just the homeless man, but for your children. It's weird that mine goes back to being a child too. That my parents took in strays, and I don't mean animals, people. There'd be people living in our house that I'd never seen it before. Why are they here? I don't know, but my parents took them in because they needed someone to take them in. One day, there's... It's a small town about a mile away from where we lived. There's a family whose house burnt down and the kids had no place to go. And the parents didn't know what they're going to do. And next thing I know, there are these kids and this family living in my house with me because my parents knew that they needed some place to go. So they took them in. And it was interesting to have these people living in our house for a while and to get to know them a little bit and spend some time together. But a few years later, I had a kind of an adventure that my parents would talk about for a while where I wandered off and was just walking around and got lost for a while. I took the wrong street on one of my daily walks I was doing and ended up walking maybe 30 miles that day. Feet were sore and swollen. It got dark and I wasn't home and everybody out in the county was looking for me. But I made it to their house that had been rebuilt after the fire. And they took me in and they knew, they called my parents right away, knew exactly who to call. And my parents came and got me. And it was just interesting that they had a chance to be there for my parents, like they had been there for them only a few years before. There was a woman in college that I met. She was a fellow student and she had some experiences growing up 
that were difficult and painful and left her with really no family to go home to during breaks at college. And it was my freshman year. And I just said, come home with me for Thanksgiving. And she did. And she spent the Thanksgiving holiday with us and and we ended up becoming very good friends. And so I think, you know, that sometimes people are put in your path because you need them just as much as they need you. And she was one of those people. Yeah. I don't have a story as poignant. Yeah, you guys have got some very strong memories there. For me, it's a more general memory in the sense, I think I've mentioned before that in the summers, my dad would grow a big garden and throw us out there, of course, to help work in it. And I recall that dad would often take the truck and load stuff up in it and off he would go. And I would ask mom, where's he going with that? And he'd have veggies and watermelons and tomatoes, all the goodies are in there. And she goes, there's some families, there's some families in town that need the food. And so he's just sharing from our garden with them. And which I thought was really interesting. One, that he would do it and not tell. <laughs> he was modest about it. He wasn't doing it for show. He was doing it because people needed it and he had it to share. And so it was interesting to me that mom was the one who needed to tell me about that. And dad really was, was very humble about it and quiet. So I took it as a it, not only an act of unexpected kindness, but really an act of faith for him that was private in, in some way. That's mm -hmm. something he needed to do. What Whatever acts of unexpected kindness we have experienced or we have shared with others, they really are powerful and they stick with us. We have a passage today that has some kindness in it as well. David, would you help get us started with this one? Sure. Genesis is a hard book to talk about sometimes. It's filled with legends and symbols that serve to establish a relationship with God that goes back to the beginnings of time. And many of the stories ring differently for us. We didn't live in the times the stories were told, much less the times that some of the stories were told about. It can be hard to connect sometimes, yet there is a quality to the stories that speaks to some universal human experiences. Various episodes in the story of Abraham and Sarah illustrate this quite well. While it's easy to see Abraham as a patriarchal sovereign who is viewed as the father of nations, at least spiritually, many stories remind us that he was subject to the same struggles as the rest of us, and that he didn't always get it right. When you look at it from some angles, the story of Isaac's birth shows some of those human strains that make Abraham's overall faithfulness to God stand out. As the story goes, or at least as my paraphrase goes, Abraham was an old man sitting out at his front porch and suddenly saw three guys. He ran to those guys and lavishly offered them hospitality, after which one of them advised Abraham and Sarah that she was going to have a son. She really didn't believe this and laughed at the thought, but eventually she conceived and gave birth to Isaac, meaning one who laughs, who in the early biblical narrative becomes the grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's easy to look at this story as one that demonstrates God's promise, as Abraham was told that he would be the father of nations. But the more I read it, the more I see the working out of that concept that we sometimes refer to as, oh, karma, or maybe even virtue. 
It's an idea that doing good or pursuing goodness for its own sake is intrinsically rewarding, that doing the right thing is intrinsically rewarding, and that we should be doing the right thing because it is the right thing. In the case of this story, Abraham is home, where he has all the things he needs, and he's visited by three people he didn't see coming. Now, given the times and places where people lived back then, if three people come upon you like that, there are two immediate options that come into play. You either treat them as bandits, or you show them hospitality. This was a harsh desert environment, where being sent away with nothing can mean your death. Accordingly, the decent thing to do, if you're not fighting off robbers, was to provide sustenance for visitors. Hospitality was a cultural lifeblood that everyone was expected to support, even when it came at a cost, since who knew when you were going to be the traveler who was stranded and in need? Abraham's choice to follow the route of hospitality was not limited to handing out a loaf of bread and a jug of water and then sending the men on their way, but instead a lavish meal, as if the visitors were long-lost family members who had finally made it home. While the men were sitting around after the meal, belching and telling stories, one of them advised that Sarah would conceive, and it is only at this point that the narrative indicates that the travelers speak for the Lord. Of course, Sarah listens to this and can't help laughing. We're not told whether it's a derisive laugh, a shock laugh, or something else, only that it was an unexpected outburst that was met with the pronouncement that God would do this. Ultimately, she bore Isaac. But we all know that this was only part of a larger story. After all, it would be very easy for Abraham and Sarah to be different people from who they were. They were promised something that had not yet come true, and they were tired of waiting. As they aged, they had to be getting increasingly desperate. As we all know, when someone gets desperate and afraid, they tend to act out in harmful ways. In their case, We've already been told how, in their desperation, they committed unconscionable crimes against Hagar and Ishmael. Nice people don't act that way. But desperate and frightened people sometimes do. Now here they are, with the sting of that incident still fresh in their hearts, being told that God is going to arrange things so that Sarah will have a son. While I know a number of people who have gone through the pain of trying and failing to conceive or of having miscarried, I cannot fully appreciate how much pain and how much that might affect their attitude in their lives. Would be that none of us should have to endure this kind of pain, but here are Sarah and Abraham in the midst of it, being told that they would finally get the child they so desperately wanted. Is it any wonder that Sarah let out a snort or two when she heard someone say that? Is it any wonder she wouldn't believe? To me, the moral of the story is not that God's care for us is based on whether we fulfill some sort of requirements. I think that God cares for us despite what we do, rather than because of it. Still, it's hard to get past the thought that Abraham did a good thing, and a good thing later happened for him. I just don't feel like the two things are that closely related. No, to me, this says that God seeks for us to do the right thing for others to show love for the stranger and the person in trouble, and trust that God is going to take care of us. There's nothing in this story that says that Abraham and Sarah are being rewarded for their act of common decency and hospitality. It just happens to be adjacent to a narrative about Sarah's having a child that she so desperately sought. 
That should tell us something. God provides for us. God has provided for us and is always there for us, even when times are terrible and we're desperate enough to do horrible things. We might not see it when things aren't going the way we prefer, but God is showing us love and mercy. If we can just understand that much, we not focus on caring for others rather than making questionable attempts to care for ourselves. If God has our needs handled, can we not focus more on taking care of the needs of others? We shouldn't have to be rewarded for doing the decent thing because we don't need to be. Acts of decency are their own reward. What would our faith be like if we could feel less grasping and more giving? How much richer could our lives be if we could show hospitality to the stranger and the troubled instead of acting out of hostility or indifference? What might God accomplish through us if we saw people who are underserved or shunned as a chance to show our goodness rather than piling on with the rest of their haters? Life can be hard. Our world is already a mean one and it's getting meaner by the day. If we can just open our eyes to see that God is already taking care of us, might we learn to take the time to just offer each other common decency? Might we move beyond desperation and fear and move in the direction of love? Don't laugh. It could happen. David, you did just such a wonderful job covering everything that needed to be covered in that passage. <laughs> like I'm still, I'm processing it still. And you didn't let anybody off the hook. You just bravo, because that was a lot of material to put into an introduction succinctly. So just bravo for that. But I love where you went with this, connecting it to our sense of hospitality and decency to get today. And I think this is such an important conversation because so much in our society is going in the opposite direction of that. We are at the point now where if you pull up to the wrong door to pick up your sibling, you could get shot and killed. And certainly hospitality looks different for us because we don't live in a barren desert. But hospitality might have something to do with the way that we treat service people or the way that we respond when someone cuts in line and it looks like they're distressed. It has more to do with the way that we treat one another in everyday interactions. Gosh, offering hospitality today is so much easier than it was in biblical times. I think, and I think that we are worse at doing it. Well, I'm keeping with where you're going. I'm often stricken by the fact that it seems the people in our society these days, when they are taken care of, when they've got all that they need, when they're well-privileged or anything you want to say about that, mm-hmm. the immediate response is not, now, how can I share this blessing with everybody mm-hmm. else? It's how do I pull the ladder up so nobody else can climb up to where I am? That's mm-hmm. right. Yes. Wow. I guess I was struck at several points during your intro, Dave, that about the, how do I say this? Uh, the anti-cynicism. <laughs> we are so cynical. 
And so when you were, don't laugh, it could happen. I'm like, yeah. I thought the same thing. I was like, but Yeah, come on, come on. Seriously, don't be naive. People who commit crimes don't get justice. People, Mm. we have kids who get schools are shot up and it doesn't change anything. No. It's, we are so cynical that it's really hard to not laugh at the idea that, as you have shared, that God is there with us in spite of how terrible we are and that good things are available to us in spite of the bad things that we do. It's not a quid pro quo. God's not a vending machine where we put things in and we get stuff out. That's not how it works. But boy, again, I don't know where I'm going with this except to say the cynical culture in which we live, I think, has a very hard time with this. And for that same reason, I do. (laughs) It's very hard to hear. Yeah. Several years ago, I think it's probably been 20 years ago now, there was a movie called Crash. I believe it won several Oscars. It's a very graphic and disturbing movie, but a very powerful movie. Occasionally, in certain contexts of my sociology classes, I have shown it when we've had small classes and we could talk about it. Just a warning, if you go look for it, it's very graphic, very a lot of profanity, and very depressing. It's got who's in it? Val Kilmer. Seen that? No, is he in it? No, it's anyway. David will look it up and tell us. Because there's two movies called Crash, and yeah, 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 but it takes place in Los Angeles. And anyway, the thing about it, sociologically that got us, a pastor and his wife told us to watch it. Uh, no, we were in Kentucky, and we made it about halfway through maybe just a little more than halfway through, and we had to turn it off because it was cynical and depressing. And it's just about in in the middle of Los Angeles, you've got every type of economic, racial, you've got every type of diversity there, right? Crashing into each other, literally car crashing into each other. And religious beliefs, you've got upper-class African-Americans and gangbangers, and you've got hardworking blue-collar white guys, and you've got Hispanics. You've just got all—you've got everything, and everybody's looking out for themselves, and everybody's afraid of anybody that looks different from them. And every bad action increases, as you mentioned, our fear and our anxiety, which increases our ability to— to dehumanize the people around us and make us meaner. And our preacher friend told us, you've got to go back and watch it, and you've got to get past that almost more than halfway. You've got to get past that mark, and then, and sure enough, and then somebody does something good to somebody else that doesn't deserve it, that breaks the cycle to a stranger, and then that stranger who has done all these other horrible things changes him. And then he does something nice for somebody else of a different race, of a different culture, of a different context. And then you just see it ripple out that way. And at the end, it's not a triumphant preacher type, here's a massive moral to the story ending. It just ends. But it ends on this positive note that even one of the most vile people in the movie ends up having his heart changed and doing something nice for an entire group of people of captured 
immigrants, but it's when you're smuggling people across the border illegally to be trafficking, human trafficking. Thank you. He was a part of this type of human trafficking ring. He ends up letting an entire group of Chinese people, takes them to Chinatown and lets them go instead of being continuing a part of this trafficking ring. It's just, it's a very profound, but it's this little ripple effect of all the fear and bad that keeps building up and it spreads out. And then one little act of kindness to a complete stranger, even somebody who's horrible, begins to build up and ripple out. Again, this is not for you to watch with your kids and watch in the middle of the afternoon when you can do something more lighthearted later. Yes, Sandra Bullock, Don Cheadle. Oh my, yeah, Brendan Fraser. Yes, this is it. That's that one. Ludicrous. That's it. Like I said before, we have this tendency to say, hey, we've made it up to where we God is taking care of us. So rather than helping other people get there, let's pull the ladder up. But I think we often do that with faith. There's a sense that we have where we've got what we need. We're secure in our faith. We're secure that God has called us to be and do a certain thing. And people who are, for I guess the biblical term we use for the poor in spirit, we don't stop to think about them and being a blessing for the poor in spirit, as Jesus tells us we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be. Because after we've got what we need and giving them that, giving them a chance to grow through that, treating them better is just not something that's our priority. And I think our faith is enhanced if we could do that, but we just don't understand that. And so we end up lacking because we've not given them, given them a chance to experience the idea that they they somehow have a faith that works, that they don't have to be like us, that they can be them and not be us and still be okay. And I'm talking in a circle there, but there, you know what I mean, though? If we're in churches, we have this feeling, like, okay, this person's got it together and this one doesn't. This one's secure. If they all look up to them, we'll want to be like them when we grow up. That person over there, they're just rough. They can't talk about Jesus very well. They're, they can't really be a part of what we do here very well. They don't really belong. They're that group of people that doesn't have a place at the table at our church for some reason. Mm-hmm. And we can't make room for them because to do so would be to threaten what we got. I was at a church once and I heard a staff member talking about some of the people that had recently joined the church and saying, oh, that's nice that we've reached them, but what do they have to offer the church? Yeah. And we're not going to grow if we're reaching. These are not the kind of people we need to be reaching. And I thought, oh, my gosh. Wow. And then some friends of mine at a church, and I'm going to call them out because they're incredible, Highland Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, started a Friday night church thinking that they were going to start getting all the artsy-fartsy, creative young folks that hang out in that area of town on Friday night with some type of emergent, cool church kind of thing. Instead, they ended up getting a whole bunch of homeless and addict folks coming from all kinds of different shelters every Friday night. And they decided, what are we going to do? These are the people God has sent to us. And the pastor and the church decided that's they're going to bring them in. They're going to serve them. They're going to minister to them. They're going to invite them to be involved as much as they can because there's a lot of transients, a lot of moving them back and forth in and out of shelters and things. But they're going to treat them. They made sure that when they had meals, they were invited, and they made sure that they weren't sitting tables by themselves, but they were integrated with everybody else. And that 
is powerful. That is church. At what point does our church need to be more decent than it is? Because I think there are times where churches don't practice common decency. It's not on the agenda. And we might need to be wondering about the example you just gave. Highlands decided to work with who they had and be decent to them and do the decent thing with them. And it transformed the experience. But is that something every church can do or does? Because I don't think it's that a common an experience or it would be such a story to tell. Exactly. Yeah, I just think it's uh, just to par. If I may paraphrase, the mind look like y'all got to help me. Batman, Attorney General, the Black Knight, the White Knight, Gotham's White Knight, Harvey Dent. Harvey, yes. Where's Harvey? Where's Harvey? Harvey Dent. Two Face. Yeah, Harvey Dent. Okay, so in in the Batman, the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, the second of the three Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Christopher Nolan. If I'm paraphrase him because he's actually a bad guy when he's saying this. But he's given in, and I think this is what our church is fighting with cynicism and fear and apathy, what you've talked about. He has given in to all of that. He, at one point, he's the hero, you know, he's going to be a decent man, but he's yelling at Batman and says, you thought we could be decent people in an indecent time. And I think the text explains to us here throughout the scriptures that God and Christ Expect us to de- be decent people in indecent times. And the good news there is that we do know how to be decent people because we know how we like to be treated <laughs> and seen and heard. And we can do that for others. I think when we talk about hospitality, that's a lot of it, right? Seeing the other people seeing those who serve us, seeing those who care for us, seeing those who are different than us, seeing those who disagree with us, and being decent. (laughs) I, I can't help but think about our mothers and how they often work so hard to teach us to be decent (laughs) from an early age. And I know my wife, we have a phrase that she has said so often to the children as they would leave the house to go to school or or wherever, she would say to them on their way out, be sweet. And it is a simple call to be decent, to treat other people well, to be kind. And the good news again is that we can do that. And God is eager to be sweet to us and to share that same hospitality with us. May we be eager to share in that overabundance of hospitality with others. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.